Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, I welcome Doug Weijen to the show. Doug is the Vice President of Global Operations from UE Systems. We discuss steam traps, how they fail, and how you can use ultrasound to detect those failures. If you haven't yet, check out my website, robsreliability.com, and sign up for the weekly reliability newsletter with bonus content. Also, if you like the show, please tell your colleagues and friends about the show to spread that word of reliability. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. I really appreciate you guys spending your time with me. Thanks for listening, and let's get rolling with Doug Wagen. Hey guys, we're back, and I'm here with Doug Wagen from UE Systems. Doug, how are you? I'm doing great, Rob. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. No, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And for everyone listening, so Doug, I mentioned you were with UE Systems. For everyone who's listening, you want to check out the best ultrasound equipment in the world, go to uesystems.com. But Doug is the Vice President of Global Operations. Now, Doug, we, we touched on it a little bit before we started recording, but do you want to give everyone an introduction to how did you get your start in ultrasound and reliability? Wow. Um, 31 years ago. Uh, actually, it's, it's, uh, it's been a heck of a journey. So I, I started out in uh, regional sales and support for UE, you know, just selling equipment, seeing customers, seeing how we could help them, how we could train them up on using it a little better. And back then it was really some very simple analog equipment, sort of point and shoot, a lot of troubleshooting, uh, almost a lot of showmanship and in, in being able to to get customers to, to buy and more importantly, use the equipment. And then as it progressed over the years, it, it really changed into much more of a diagnostic tool. And, you know, I sort of knew if I wanted to stay on the, the cutting edge and I wanted to be able to still be out there and be a productive member of a UE's team that I had to really educate myself. So I, I was really fortunate. I mean, there was a lot of conferences that were just starting to come around on maintenance reliability. There was a lot of books being written. Um, you know, it was sort of before you could do a lot of webinars and stuff. I mean, we're talking, this was, you know, mid eighties to mid nineties into 2000. But uh, yeah, it was just really for me an education process. And I, I really tried to dig in. I tried to you know, get a feel for what our customers were doing, you know, what was having their lunch every day. And um, the more I talked to the customers, the more I read, the more I educated myself. Uh, I guess by by absorption, you, you eventually start to learn some things. So I did. I, I was worked hard at, at, at the, um, the CMRP. So I took the CMRP exam and passed that. And I, uh, and I, I'm still, it's still a, a weekly, monthly, yearly educational process. I try to, to absorb everything I can from our customers, from websites, from things like this. Yeah, it's it's great. And and that's one thing, you know, I've had Sean Miller and Adrian Messer on the show before. And that's one thing they've mentioned as well is just education. And 
like how, how much support that UE gives them to, to take these courses and to really push their learnings? Yep. It's all about, I mean, for us being able to, to understand our customers' needs and what they're, what they're going through, it, not just about ultrasound. I mean, for us, it's really, uh, it, it's really more about, you know, ultrasound's just a part of their overall reliability pie, so to speak. You know, any place we can help make the other pieces of the pie stronger, it makes the ultrasound part stronger. So we're all about that. Absolutely. And and one thing I guess I'll I'll ask you right now is like I like you guys obviously you host your own conference and I was fortunate to attend it last year. Do you want to just give people an introduction? Like it's probably going to be coming up in May or June in Clearwater, Florida. Do you want to just give a people an intro? Yeah, sure. May twelfth through fifteenth, um, down in Clearwater Beach. It's um you know, we started out as uh, as just an ultrasound conference, you know, ultrasound world. And after a couple of years, we realized that, you know, ultrasound is not the only game in town. A lot of the people who were coming and presenting there, you know, were more involved in the reliability side because, you know, the philosophy was, hey, you've got to have a strong reliability infrastructure in a facility to even make any of these condition monitoring technologies valuable. I mean, if you don't have that, that cultural reliability, how are you going to make the technologies work for you. So we sort of shifted into doing, you know, ultrasound world and reliable asset world. And now we just call it UE world, but it's two tracks. Essentially, it's a a track that sort of focuses on users, plant guys who have ultrasound programs. And they talk about where their successes were, where the pitfalls were, how they got the program up, running, and how they sustain it. And then there's another track um, that's the reliability side, which goes through things like planning and scheduling and change management and all the things that you need in, as a backbone to make the ultrasound programs work. So, yeah, this will be our, heck, is this our 16th, either our 16th or 17th year coming up this year doing that conference? And it just keeps growing every year. Um so it's a great community. It's a great opportunity for, for people to come and, and network, not so much with like UE guys or supplier guys. It's more networking with other plant guys, you know, their peers and, and figuring out, hey, what do you guys do that we can that we can copy or what do we do that we can share with you? Yeah, and, and I'm hoping I can hit that one again this year. And I think that, that you know, you brought up one thing where it was like reliability is not just predictive maintenance. And I think that that's something that I've seen at least over the the last few years that people I think are getting a little bit confused with. And specifically, it's with the the artificial intelligence or the machine learning products. And I think that they forget that it's, it's part of your program. It's not the whole program in itself. Yep, that's exactly right. So, Moving, moving into it a little bit, I, I wanted to give you on to talk today a little bit about steam traps because I guess it would have been maybe, it was one of the first maybe five or 10 podcasts. I had Ricky Smith on and I asked him for, you know, what's a, what's a great tip for getting low hanging fruit wins? Mm-hmm. And what he said was use ultrasound, get this compressed air leak detection and it's going to reduce your energy consumption. And then obviously that's going to pay for not only the gun, but for a lot of other things. Do you want to just give us an introduction to like steam traps or like how do, what are they? What do they do? And like, what should we be looking for? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, 
you know, essentially a, a steam trap is like a valve. Um, it, it's really, if you look at the three functions of, of any of the steam traps, primarily it's designed to vent air from the system during a startup. Now they, some do it a little more high tech than others, but basically a steam trap gets rid of the air when you start up the steam system. Um, the second thing is they're designed to hold back steam so that you can take advantage of the latent energy in the steam and essentially heat something. And whether that's, whether you're using that energy to heat a process, you know, a batch of a chemical, whether you're using that energy, um, to heat a room, you know, there's the way the steam trap works is it holds back that steam until that steam gives off its energy. And then it's a mechanical device, essentially, that once all the energy has gone out of the steam, it opens up and it gets rid of the condensate, which is, which is basically the liquid um, that the steam turns into after it cools down. And I'm kind of oversimplifying, but it's an easy way to sort of understand what it does. Now, when we're talking about steam traps, like, are there different types that we need to be aware about, or can we use ultrasound on everything? You can use ultrasound on every trap, but to use it effectively, you really need, and this goes back to education, you really need to understand what type of trap it is that you're looking at, because they, they work on different principles, and they sound different. And, and ultrasound being an acoustic technology, it's critically important to be able to identify the different types of traps that you're testing. Um, so, I mean, you've got things like inverted bucket traps, which is a, an on-off trap. The trap closed when the steam is in it, the steam gives off its latent energy, the steam cools down into condensate, the trap opens, discharges that condensate, and then closes and starts the whole process over again. Um, that's an, what we call an on-off design. So from an ultrasound standpoint, if you know that that's an inverted bucket trap, there should be a very distinctive cycle that you listen to. The trap opens, discharges the condensate, and then closes. Um, there's other types of traps, like a, a floating thermostatic trap, that is a continuous flow trap. So in other words, um, it's, it's more designed to maintain temperature. So as the, the steam starts to condense, it's constantly getting rid of the condensate. Okay, so it maintains a very, very steady temperature profile. Um, and then there's some other types of trap. There's disc traps, which are also an, an on-off trap. Um, there's orifice traps. It's really just a, a plate with a hole in it. Um, so yeah, there, understanding the different types of traps is sort of the first step and being able to go listen to them. If you don't know how it's supposed to function, how the heck are you going to tell if it's if it's good or bad? <laughs> and that's, you know, that's one of those fundamental reliability things, right? Is defining functions and then defining functional failure. Oh, exactly. You got to know the failure modes and you got to be able to match the technology to the failure mode. That's, you know, the best technology to identify that failure mode. And it's the same thing with traps. You've got to be able to, to understand how they work. And it's easy to do that. You can go to trap manufacturers websites and you can see animated little videos of, you know, all colorful, how the steam comes in, the trap gives off the energy, you know, the steam gives off the energy and then it condenses back to liquid and discharges. So once uh, somebody understands that, they at least can go out with it in the back of their mind, like, hey, here's how this thing's supposed to sound. 
Now, how does it actually sound? <laughs> yeah, I've, I, you know, I've recently started uh, a new job and I've been working with equipment that I'm not familiar with at all. And, and YouTube has really been very useful in the first few weeks, just understanding like how is something work and then just translating that into how does it actually fail? Absolutely. So let's dig into that a little bit. Like you mentioned how they work a little bit. Now, when, when they're failing, like how do they fail and like what are we looking for? You've got, essentially you got three failure modes. You've got something where the trap just fails completely wide open and it just continues to blow live steam. And, and there's some problems with that. That's probably the worst case scenario. Um, you know, you've got increased steam use and to, to make the steam, you're ta essentially taking water, putting it in a boiler and heating it up. And that water is not just tap water. So it's treated with chemicals that are expensive and that's a whole process. So if you're just throwing steam, you know, you've got a leaking trap. That's probably the biggest uh, energy waster that you can have. Um, there's another uh, problem that it's easy to detect when we're looking at traps and that's they're leaking. So it's not completely blowing through, but usually the, the trap itself, think of it just as a mechanical device, the efficiency of the trap starts to break down. Um, it gets loose. Uh, on an inverted bucket trap, a lot of times the, the linkage in the trap will start to get loose from wear over time. And instead of getting a nice open close, eh, the trap will start to bleed a little bit of steam. It's, it, you could almost relate it like a leaking steam trap, sort of like a small compressed air leak. Is it wasting a ton of energy? Not a ton, but it's wasting enough that it's a concern and it's certainly not going to get any better. So the, the two failure modes where you pretty much end up repairing or replacing the trap are going to be, you know, that failed completely open should be a number one priority. The leaking should be the number two priority. You can also get a trap that fails closed, and, and that creates some other types of problems. I mean, that backs up condensate um, into your piping, uh, can back it up into heat exchangers. You know, it can cause poor heat transfer, so you're you know, if you've got mostly liquid because these traps are blocked and they're not getting rid of the liquid, the temperatures start to go down overall. So you're not getting the heat transfer you need to heat your process or to heat your building or to do whatever it is you're going to do with it. So obviously we're here a little bit to talk about how ultrasound helps us with those. Now, are there any other technologies that you use in conjunction with ultrasound or is it just ultrasound? And then maybe, maybe give us a little intro to like what we should be listening for. Yeah. Two, two technologies that are pretty, um, pretty well-known and, and heavily used when it comes to steam trap testing. One is temperature. I mean, we're dealing with something that's hot and cold. So it would make sense you're using some kind of an infrared device. Um, a lot of guys who are doing steam trap surveys are using these handheld like spot pyrometers. And they're great because from a, from a time efficiency standpoint of doing a steam trap inspection, if you go up to that trap and you take an inexpensive, simple handheld thermometer, basically an infrared thermometer, and you look at the upstream side of that steam trap and then the downstream side of that trap, if it's all cold, that trap's plugged up. 
there's no, there's no other explanation. You don't even have to test that one with ultrasound because you know, if there's supposed to be steam there, there's not, there's liquid there. So it, it helps you sort of narrow down the ones you actually need to test. Now, if you're getting temperature differences from the inlet to the outlet, that's where you can get fooled. That's a dangerous thing to just rely on infrared um, when it comes to trap testing, because sometimes these temperature profiles you see aren't exactly what's happening inside of the trap. You could have a, a perfectly good functioning inverted bucket trap, for example, that has a, a high inlet temperature and a high outlet temperature. And you would think that that's blowing through live steam, but depending on where you looked at it with the temperature sensor, if you look at it right at the discharge of the trap, many times because the pressure changes from the inlet to the outlet, the trap's working right. It's holding steam. It's getting rid of condensate. But then that pressure drops down after the discharge and that condensate flashes for just a second back into steam. So if you're testing it there with a temperature sensor, you're seeing heat because it flashed for just a second into steam. But then if you go a little further down the line, it turns back into condensate. So the trap's actually working right. So you can get a lot of false positives with infrared. Great tool should be used in conjunction with the, with the ultrasound to help narrow down you know, which traps you need to test. But you can't rely on it by itself. You, you really need to listen to the function of the trap and listen to it. You know, if it's an on-off trap, you got to listen to it, you know, open, discharge the condensate, and close. Now, you did mention a little bit there that, like, location for the thermography matters. Does, does location matter for ultrasound? Are you using the probe or are you just using the gun? Now, you're using the, the, some type of contact probe or a waveguide. You really need to make some good metal-to-metal -metal contact, and you really need to do that at the discharge of the trap, not right at the discharge orifice, a little bit down the pipe from the discharge orifice. Um, and, and again, this goes back to education. You can, if you're going to go out there and, you know, test a inverted bucket trap, or if you can identify what type of trap it is by looking at it, there's also all kinds of diagrams that show you every type of trap that you can just pull off of Google, and they'll tell you where the discharge orifice is. So you know, don't be right on it, be a little bit downstream of it, because that's where the turbulence is, and ultrasound picks up turbulence. And and with the like with the probe itself, do you have to set it up in any way, or is it kind of just a matter of taking it out of the box and firing it up and ready to rock? There's some little things you want to do. You want to go out um, on your on your lower pressure steam systems. Um, you know, you get down into 25, 30 pound steam. There's not a tremendous amount of turbulence. It doesn't make as much noise. So when you've got your ultra probe set up or your ultrasonic detector set up, you probably want it on maximum sensitivity. Uh, you want to set it up on 40 kilohertz, which is a, or a fixed band type of thing where it has a, a nice wide range of, of audible detection. Um, if it's really high pressure, you know, you probably want to take a look at adjusting that sensitivity down while you're listening to it until you get it in a comfortable spot. And, and on analog units, you want to sort of have the analog meter in the middle. On a digital unit, you want to just get it down to where it's in a mid-range decibel level. Mm -hmm. That's cool. And I, and I guess like for people listening, you know, it's, 
it seems like this should be something common that a lot of plants should be doing and but but I've been to a bunch of plants and not a lot of them do them like how does someone like how would you recommend someone starting a steam trap inspection like what's the frequency they should be testing should they just test every steam trap or or just the critical ones like how do you recommend going about that well really one of the first things you want to do is go out and look at how many traps do you have and of those steam traps that you have how many are, are critical to your operation in other words if you're in a pharmaceutical company and you're using traps uh, to hold back steam so that that energy can heat a process and that process has to be kept at a certain temperature or the batch goes bad those traps are super critical to your operation um, if you're in a high school and they've got radiators in every room and you've got the traps on each side of that radiator, many times if that trap fails, eh, in the winter, the room's going to get a little hot and they open the window. My apartment in New York used to get blazing hot in the winter because none of the traps worked. <laughs> how critical how critical is that is is the building owner going to go out there and say i got this knucklehead in a one-bedroom apartment i gotta hire you for thousands of dollars to come in and test the steam traps nah he's probably not going to do that um but in a chemical plant or in a pharmaceutical plant if it's you know critical to the process that they keep consistent temperatures on these batches then absolutely so there's no real good answer to that a lot of plants um, will go out depending on the number of traps they have and they'll do a yearly steam trap inspection. Um, the example I'll use later on when we start talking about um, the company that, that I have here as an example, um, they started out doing uh, quarterly. And then once you've got a pretty good handle on your traps, again, once you the reliability of the traps goes up, once, once you're your processes in place once you've replaced them with the right size traps and the right trap for the right application they could cut that back and maybe do it once every you know once every six months or once a year yeah i definitely like that approach and i i definitely like the approach also of like starting quarterly or starting monthly just to build up that baseline of what something should sound like and then refining it over time as you build history absolutely absolutely and and the companies that have pretty effective steam trap testing programs um that's exactly how they do it or you know you've always got the other option of going out and hiring a, a service provider to come in and there's some good quality service providers out there that can come in and that's all they do they test steam traps so they're in your plant for two days and they move to another plant for two days a lot of you know, being good at testing steam traps is like, you know, being a good golfer, being a good baseball player. It takes practice. <laughs> it's not something you go just right off the bat and become good at testing steam traps. You got to do it. So, so let's dig into that a little bit more, right? And, and like with Ricky Smith, when he recommended, you know, using ultrasound for compressed air leaks, like, and even Sean Miller talked about it where he's taken customers just as like a demo to the tool and they've paid for it multiple times over, mm -hmm. like how much practice does it take to be good enough, I suppose, at steam traps? We, what we sort of recommend is tell people to educate themselves first in their plant on how many traps do they have, you know, be 
before they even learn how to test them, understand the different types of traps they have in their trap population. So pull out some drawings, you know, do a walkthrough, you know, so A, understand the types of traps you have in your population, B, know where they all are. Um, And that's critical. You should be able to get that from drawings. Um, Understand sort of the sound characteristics of each trap, at least mechanically how they're supposed to operate. Is it an on-off trap or is it a continuous flow trap? Once they got that part of it down, you know, there's plenty of opportunities to get training. Um, We've got an online course that's a great starting point you know, for somebody to go and just understand, here's a steam system, here's traps, here's what they do, you know, here's how you test them. And then there's courses out there. I mean, we've got a, a two and a half or a two day steam trap examiner course where the students come into the class, they spend a half a day in the classroom, and they spend a day and a half just testing trap after trap after trap. And that's the way to do it. That's the practice part of it. So you really need the, the understanding comes first, I think. And again, this is sort of my opinion, but I would hate to hand somebody a tool and say, go out in the plant, start testing them. That's the wrong way to practice. You need a little bit of the the theory behind it. You need to understand what it is you're listening to You understand the failure modes of the traps and what that would potentially sound like. Um, You know, educate yourselves on that first and then get out there and start testing them. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to, you know, make some bad calls, but eventually you get pretty competent. You know, we, we say that somebody who's done their due diligence ahead of time, really prepared, really studied, understands how they work and where they fit into the overall steam system. Then they go to a two-day class that does nothing but testing traps. I would say they come out at like a 70% competency. The other 30%, they're going to just have to get in the field by just doing it. I love it. I love it. And I think you know, spending those two days or day and a half just practicing is going to be super valuable. It's just like having a coach in in sports, right? Like you're going to be, you can't, you don't become Michael Jordan without practice. That's that's exactly right. So Doug, you, you kind of touched on it before and you said you had a customer, like an example of someone who was successful testing steam traps. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about like who they are, and what they did. Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, it, it's actually DuPont, and I don't think anybody's not heard of DuPont. Um, <laughs> they have an a energy team that goes around and, you know, does a significant amount of, uh, of testing on air and on steam. Um, on the steam side, um, they basically, they started back in like 2007. Um and over from 2007 to about uh, probably 2017, 2016, um, they refined their process, refined their process, refined their process of, of doing these surveys around different plants. But the example I'm, I'm going to use was actually um, was 2000, I think it was 13 to 15. It was two years, a couple years ago. Um, they did 18 steam trap and steam leak surveys. Now, steam leaks are also an issue because that can cause some problems when the leaks are out to atmosphere. So you can also use ultrasound in a scanning mode to determine where steam leaks are because on the higher pressure steam, you can't always see the white plume. You can hear it with the, with the ultrasonic detection. You almost treat it like an air leak. But they took 18 plants over the course of two years. 
And what they identified over that those 18 plants in two years was um, 141 and a half million pounds of steam that they were losing. Wow. So roughly, yeah, roughly about uh, 16,000 pounds an hour. Um, at some of the facilities um, that had a more aggressive and, and I guess a more advanced maintenance and reliability program where they were replacing traps um, on a regular basis based on manufacturer's recommendations, they were getting an average of like four and a quarter percent of all the traps they tested were failing. Um, some of the sites that didn't have as an aggressive a program um, just weren't doing the proper maintenance. Could have been up to 39% of the traps they tested were failed. <laughs> so, I mean, it was, it was significant. Um, it was a significant amount of, amount of pounds and money that correlated incidentally um, the, just the dollars on those 18 plants that they did the surveys, it was just under a million bucks. It was $947,130 that they identified in leaking traps. That's like, that's big dollars. And and I mean, yeah, in terms of like the amount of work that goes into it, like you, you mentioned it, right? Like you could even hire a contractor to come find those, those trap failures. And, then it's just a matter of fixing them. Right, right. And, and not to mention, um, you know, the energy thing is one thing. I mean, then 950 grand is, you think about DuPont, okay, maybe it's not as big an issue. They lost a million bucks. But think about the effect on their process. I mean, if they had that many pounds of steam they were losing, you know, the, he didn't give me numbers. They didn't give me numbers on specifics on how that affected their process. But they're a chemical company. You know, they're using the steam for something. It's not just for fun and games. So <laughs> losing that much of it, in addition to the, the fiscal impact, had to have an impact on their on their operations. And, and there's some other impacts you get in addition to uh, to just the impact on production and the impact on the, the energy usage. You've got emissions to consider. So one of the things that they, they found out that they were losing um, – you know, about mm, for all 18 plants, about 6 million pounds a year in CO2, extra emissions because of those leaks. The other one that was an interesting number was the, the pure water. Um, I'm from Philly. That's why I say water. Not, I'm not from New York. <laughs> that's why I don't say water. But uh, the loss of the, of the water of the H2, H2O, you know, you're looking at 6 million gallons a year. And that water has to be treated and it has to be put into the boiler to create the steam. So there's some, there's some other impacts, you know, from a safety, health, environmental impacts that you've got to consider, not just the dollars and cents and not just the lost production. Absolutely. Now that's a great example. Now, Doug, like we're kind of getting close to wrapping up here, but do you want to give us you know, what are some common mistakes that people make when they're looking to get into a steam testing or a steam trap testing program? And how do we avoid making those mistakes? We kind of already touched on that, Rob. Um, you know, the, I, I see the most common mistakes is somebody will, you know, a, a, and I'm not going to pick on managers, but you get like a plant manager, a maintenance manager, and they say, oh, you know, corporate or we decided we're losing 
energy here. Our, our energy costs are high. We want to reduce energy. Let's start doing air leak surveys. Let's start doing steam trap surveys. They send a guy, you know, to a, to a class on steam traps, and then they throw some equipment in their hand, and they say, go do a steam trap survey. And typically, they, they approach it too quick, and they don't have an organized, detailed plan. Um, and part of that organized, detailed plan is, is the pre-work, you know, is doing the research on their own facility, you know, knowing where the traps are, knowing how many traps they have, knowing what type of traps they are, uh, you know, and then digging into which ones are considered critical to the process, you know, being able to do some kind of criticality ranking, which ones are going to have a dramatic effect on the process and the energy versus which ones are just wasting some money from an energy standpoint. You know, so it's, it's jumping the gun without doing, without doing their due diligence and without doing the research. If they're willing to do that up front, and they dedicate a person to go test steam traps, and that person is willing to educate themselves and attend the class, they can have a much more effective program. And they also need to put together, I think, some really good written procedures. Because as everybody knows who's in this industry, you get turnover. So, you know, you've got a guy or two guys at a, at a plant who have been doing the steam trap surveys once a year for the past five years, and then they quit, retire, move on, get a promotion, and they put the gun in somebody else's hand, the ultrasound in somebody else's hand, and say, oh, by the way, we do a steam trap survey once a quarter, once, twice a year, or once a year, go test them. <laughs> and they have no idea what they're doing. So I think that's really where the, that's the biggest mistakes I see out in the field. I mean, we'll literally get a call from somebody who's like, I just started with this company and they handed me this ultrasonic device and said it tests steam traps. How do I do it? And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> wait a second. So you got a couple days to spend with me on the phone and then you're only halfway there? You know, so you can't, you can't jump the gun on it. Yeah, and I really like your first point about there's always a lot of work that needs to go up beforehand. And, and I think a lot of us, like we don't look at we don't look at that. Like we're looking for the result. We're not necessarily looking for the root cause of, of what needs to happen first. And, you know, doing the criticality analysis, understanding your plant specifically, like these things are fundamental to doing reliability right. Mm -hmm. And if you approach it the right way, which I can honestly say DuPont was committed to it, they approached it the right way. In that 2007 to 2015, from when they started the whole process as an idea until they refined it and had it as a, as a really detailed, you know, procedure and a, and a program where they went out and did their plants anywhere from, you know, four times to one time per year, they took their failure rate on steam traps from 14% down to 5%. They literally took their steam trap loss, you know, from astronomical numbers, 60,000 pounds to 11,000 pounds a year from just traps. And they reduced that spend that correlated to dollars, 2 million to 500,000. So that's phenomenal numbers they were able to realize. Yeah. And it's, it's all just hard work and, and like a, having a plan and making it happen. Yep. Absolutely. So, so Doug, you kind of mentioned some of the mistakes that you have. Do you have any other top tips that maybe you haven't touched on yet? Record keeping. Um, I, I didn't talk about that. And 
the one thing, you know, you never want to repeat the mistakes of the past. So if, if you're able to go out and you, you're committed to having a, a top tier steam trap testing program, part of it's not just finding the ones that are bad and, and fixing them. It's documenting, you know, what type they were, what pressure were they, you know, what type of trap for what application and, and keeping that in a database, you know, we're able to do that with our, with our ultra probe series of instruments, they come with software. So you're able to actually track your, your steam traps, track the number of leakers. You start looking at the trends like, wow, all of a sudden I, I find that 90% of my inverted bucket traps are leaking. Well, maybe it's because they're missized. Maybe it's because the person who did the installs doesn't know how to install them correctly. Maybe they're not really suitable for the application that they're using for at that plant. So there's, there's things that the, the, the data can tell you um, that you can't get from just going out and doing a, a fast find and fix program. <laughs> I tell you, Doug, I've been digging into our CMMS lately, and I wish, I wish they had all that information in there. It'd make my life so much easier. <laughs> oh, absolutely, man. Absolutely. <laughs> so Doug, the last question I got for you, and I, I kind of stole this one off of Ryan Chan and the Masterminds and Maintenance podcast, but what is something that people don't know about ultrasound that you want them to know? That's a, that's a great question, actually, Rob. The, uh, I think that, and, and I think it applies not just to ultrasound, I think it applies to a lot of these technologies. Um, people can get really caught up in the instrument itself and they can get caught up in the the cost of the equipment or how high tech it is or how low tech it is and all they're missing the boat a little bit i think the real money if you if you dig in and look at it um is in the data acquisition time you got to find a tool that's going to do the job you need it to do as quickly as you can and still get good results because we're not you know just overloaded with qualified people to do the maintenance reliability jobs anymore. You know, the number of people starting to dwindle. So all these plants are asking their maintenance people to do a, a lot more in a lot less time. So the real trick with, with some of the instruments um, and, and specifically our tools, I mean, it's part of our overall, um, you know, development strategy when we come up with new instruments is how can we, decrease the data acquisition time while maintaining the type of information that people need. It needs to be easy. It needs to be accurate and it needs to be fast. So I wish people would focus more on, you know, what tools and, and how can I cut my data acquisition time rather than just, you know, cost of equipment or bells and whistles on equipment. <laughs> we all like bells and whistles though. <laughs> I love them too. I love them too. But are, are they really effective? Does, does this bell and this whistle really let you go take accurate data quickly and easily and, and give you information that you can do something with? Yeah. And I think there's, there's another piece to that. When you mentioned like there's less people that are available, I think also on the diagnostic end, there's a piece to that where we're, we're seeing it where people are just going to say, oh, well, let, let artificial intelligence handle it. 
there's going to be a little bit where you still have to have a person oversee it, but you have to be careful that 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 data is actually providing you value. If you're just collecting it for the sake of collecting it, you're not going to get, well, you're just going to have a lot of data to sift through. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So Doug, I, I mean, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I had a, I had a great time. And, and to be honest, like I didn't, I haven't done a lot with steam traps through, through my career. So I definitely learned a little bit now that I can be more dangerous than I was yesterday. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, continue to educate yourself, Rob. Read the books. Look at the different traps. If nothing else, go to a couple manufacturers' websites. Go to Armstrong or Spirex Sarco, and look at the really cool little animated videos they have of how these traps work. It's, it's worth <laughs> its weight in gold. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check that out. And, and you know, for people who are listening, are frequent listeners to the show, they know that I don't read reliability books. I, I just have people like you on to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool. So, Doug, obviously people listening, they should go to uesystems.com. Do you have anything else to plug? Uh, since we're talking about Steam, we've got a great, you know, Steam online course. You know, where it goes into a lot of detail about, you know, how to test traps and goes into some introduction to the Steam system and how it works. I'd plug that every day of the week for, for somebody who has Steam in their plant and is looking for a way to get started. And, of course, Ultrasound World. I mean, I, it's been such a great venue for just information exchange and, you know, helping people get their programs put together and you know so many opportunities have come out of it that i've personally been involved in where you know some of our our customers have actually you know over sitting at the tiki bar over a beer gotten an opportunity <laughs> then to turn around and visit another company's plant to do some benchmarking you know maybe somebody started a couple of years ahead of them on their on their reliability path or their ultrasound path and and just these these connections that people make is just phenomenal and how much it pays off yeah it it was great and just so people know there was no beer at that conference no <laughs> <laughs> so Doug you know I you know thanks for coming on and and I hope that maybe we can have you back on in the future to talk about something else I haven't I'm not sure what but we'll have to keep diving deeper <laughs> any anytime Rob thank you so much appreciate it I appreciate you and 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 I appreciate everyone who's listening I hope you guys learned some stuff about steam steam traps I also think that obviously if you're in a plant that uses steam definitely reach out to UE systems and and just have them in maybe they can demo or definitely check them out on their website that being said thanks for listening and we'll see you all next week